You are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, gadzooks, we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, especially at this time of year, and terrified when Amy says she has an idea, because that usually spells trouble. I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover, and even maybe if you aren't. I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict. I love to watch the birds uh, at my (laughs) bird feeders from my kitchen, and I treat a good yard sale like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish topics like authors in the news recent book-to-film adaptations, weird stuff we've Googled while reading, and our TBR count. We're glad you've joined us. So this week, we chat with Kelsey Irvick, whose graphic memoir, The Keeper, Soccer, Me, and the Law That Changed Women's Lives, I discovered after our friend and former guest Bethany told us about what a great book it was. Kelsey is the author of four books, but The Keeper is her first foray into a full graphic experience. She weaves her own personal story of being a high school and Division I college soccer player with the history and effect Title IX has had on women in all areas of their lives, not just in sports. If you love the feminist bent of the movie Barbie, this book will give you similar vibes. The Keeper has been recommended by the New York Times Book Review, Publishers Weekly, School Library Journal, and was the winner of the State Literary Prize of Ohio, the Ohioana Book Award. I guess I'm saying that right. Which has been awarded to other notable authors, including Celeste Ng, Ross Gay, and John Scalzi. Even if you aren't a sports fan, and I am not, you will thoroughly enjoy this book. And remember that starting in season 10, uh, which will start in mid-January, Amy has a new project. She loves a project, which is to give listeners book recommendations. If you're looking for a book set in Romania or a book about rabbits or a book about changelings or anything in between, send us a message. And mostly Amy, but possibly me, will recommend a similar read you can add to your nightstand. I'm super excited about a new project. But first, so Carrie, you and I did something that was, I think, kind of a -a one-of-a-kind experience last night. Hopefully it won't be a -a one-of-a-kind. Hopefully more people will be able to experience it. Yes. So actually a uh, former guest who lives in Louisville was hosting a performance of the Christmas Carol in her home by two professional thespians that are well, well known in the city of Louisville. They have been in Kentucky Shakespeare. They have been in Actors Theater Productions. They have been all over the place. And they have started a new venture called Wingback Productions, where they will do house parties. And I thought this was a brilliant idea, and I always like to see something kind of holiday-ish. So I asked Carrie if she wanted to join me, and she said, sure. So <laughs> <laughs> with that much enthusiasm, too. Exactly like that. Sure. I don't even think I put an exclamation part point on it. <laughs> no, you never use an exclamation point. So it was last night, and it was just a really unique experience. I love this idea of in-home theatrical experiences. Have you ever been to a musical house party? Uh, no, I don't think so. I have been to one and it was, it was really cool years ago, but the production of the Christmas Carol uh, just had two people performing. They're a married couple, Abigail Bailey Maupin and Gregory Maupin. And they had very few props. There was a chair, there was a rug, there was a couple of like different kinds of scarves and uh, a special tricked out candle. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were able to do all of that and it was spectacular. Yeah. I felt festive when I left. I'd had some mulled wine and a couple of Christmas cookies and a good rendition of the Christmas Carol. So maybe this will become a thing, you know, maybe this is the next trend. Theater in your homes. I love it. I thought it was pretty cool. So Okay, so I have one more thing to report back. This is super embarrassing. 
Yeah. Super embarrassing. So last week I talked about how. Did you? Oh, wait. Wait. Is this how you made your mark at Carmichael's? This, I mean, technically yeah. it wasn't your mark, but. It is. It is. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So last week I talked about how I combined two of my loves, which are books and dogs, because I started taking dogs at the our local shelter, Louisville Metro Animal Services, on field trips. And I would take them with me to deposit books into little free libraries around town. So last weekend, I did that with my daughter. We took out a dog. She was lovely. She's such a sweet dog. And I do believe that she's been adopted since. But, oh, well, good. Yeah. But her name was Harmonica. And Harmonica? Yeah. I think they get so many dogs in. They just yeah. name them all kinds of crazy things. So we took this lovely dog named Harmonica, who was so chill. She was so sweet. And I thought, oh, you know what? We should take her to Carmichael's bookstore because Carmichael's <laughs> is always saying how they're dog friendly and they show cute pictures of people bringing their dogs in. So I thought that this would be a great idea. So we take Harmonica in. She does great. You know, in fact, <laughs> one of the booksellers, Hilton, I think his name is, was loving all over her. I have some pictures. I will post it. But then... <laughs> We maybe had her in there a little too long and my daughter had her over in the corner looking at like books about crocheting or something and poor Harmonica, she took a dump right in, <laughs> right but, in the aisle. But, but you're leaving out the most important piece of this story. <laughs> you're leaving out the critical, okay, a, a critical <laughs> element. Of this plot that is really important. It has to do with character motivation okay. here. Okay. Well, <laughs> let me say that is not completely Harmonica's fault. And I am a, an experienced dog person, but somehow I made a rookie mistake, which is, is that <laughs> my daughter and I had gone through the drive through at McDonald's and gotten her a cheeseburger to eat before we went to the bookstore, right? So I don't even eat a cheeseburger before I go to the bookstore. <laughs> and they have a bathroom I can use. <laughs> oh, so anyway, I was I was mortified. We took Harmonica out and Hilton cleaned it up. I mean, I offered to do all that. We we hightailed it out of there cuz I felt so terrible about it. I later texted Sam Miller, our favorite bookseller, who was there that day. And I said, I feel so bad. Please let me pay for the cleaning of the carpet. My daughter had to go back in to get something. And she said that they had totally taken up the piece <laughs> of carpet where it had happened. And I'm like, oh, my God. Are, is there going to be like a big bald spot in their carpet now? I was feeling horrible. But what Sam said was that actually they're carpet squares that you can replace and that they had a ton of them and it was not a problem and that harmonica was welcome back anytime. And they were very <laughs> fond of her. I think she might just have been trying to be nice, but anyway, <laughs> I'm probably not going to take any more of my field trip dogs to Carmichael's. Or you can take them. Just don't get them cheeseburgers at <laughs> McDonald's beforehand. Yeah. You know what I think Sam ought to do? I think she ought to make a little, I hope she's, she listens to this. I think she ought to make a little metal tag and put it on that square and says, this square brought to you by Amy and Harmonica. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> and if that were to happen, I would make a trip over there. I need to go pick up books anyway. I will go take a picture of it and I will post it on social media. Oh, that's funny. Oh. Well, I hope everybody gets funny. a good laugh about that. <laughs> it reminds me of a toddler. So uh, we used to vacation with my husband's cousin and their family and their kids are a little bit younger than ours. But I remember us taking a trip to the Smoky Mountains one year. And they had an indoor uh, miniature golf course. And I remember our young niece, they were still trying to potty train her, pulling down her pants and, oh my gosh. and pooping on the <laughs> miniature golf course. <laughs> when you got to go, go, you, you got to go. go. Yeah. So there is no way to transition from <laughs> to smoothly or successfully transition this. But 
We need to take a, a sanitizing break. Let's go listen to something that'll get our minds completely off of this, which is Kelsey Irvick and The Keeper. Very excited to have Kelsey Irvick with us. She is a professor at Indiana University South Bend, and Amy discovered her graphic memoir. So we're going to talk with Kelsey about that in just a second. Thanks for being here with us, Kelsey. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I read your graphic memoir called The Keeper, Soccer Me, and The Law That Changed Women's Lives. And I read it during the height of the Barbie movie phenomenon, and also as the Women's World Cup for Soccer was wrapping up. So it was sort of perfect timing for me to read it. Actually, a friend of ours had recommended it to me, and she loves soccer. She goes to all of the Louisville women's soccer games. And so I was a little curious about it. So there's definitely a vibe of girl-woman power in your book. And so I'm wondering, what was the event that made creating this book important to you right now? Yeah, well, it actually goes back a little ways to when I was coaching my daughters. I mean, I, I coached her soccer teams from like preschool up through junior high. But there was a moment when she was in sixth grade, and this is almost 15 years ago now, but I was coaching her team and, and I met the other coach that was going to be joining me for that season. And it was another mother who... I learned had played division one soccer. And we learned actually that we had played against each other in Ohio. We were both now living in Northern Indiana, but we kind of figured all this out. And it was like a really remarkable moment to me. And I was thinking of how the idea of a soccer mom had changed so much from when my mom was the like original soccer mom in the 1980s. And here we were in the early to mid 2000s. And and soccer moms, you know, could now be former division one players who <laughs> were coaching their own daughters. And that, you know, my daughter was just seeing a very different kind of soccer mom than than I had had. I wrote an essay about that back then. And then as we were heading toward the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which was the, 2022, I was just starting to think again about some of these issues and the way that Title IX basically shaped my entire life. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about that law that made that shift happen, you know, to go from my mom as basically a cheerleader on the sidelines of my soccer years to me having been a former player coaching my daughter. So your your book is based in part on your experience playing soccer as as a young woman. And while it is a memoir, it brings in other things too, such as pop culture, especially from the 1980s, which I just devoured. I love, <laughs> I'm an 80s uh, girl too. And so I love uh-huh. that. Why was it important for you to tell it the way that you did or incorporate all those those things? Yeah, well, I mean, so much of those pop culture elements from Madonna and Prince to even in the 70s, like Wonder Woman and Charlie's Angels to Barbie, of course. And I talk about Miss America. I mean, these were all they were the ways that we learned about gender roles. And that, you know, when I was growing up, and probably you too, I mean, we're looking at these models of, oh, okay, this is one version of how to be a a woman in this world. And there was just such tension in, in all of them from like, you know, I mean, of course, Barbie with her perfect proportions, but occasionally, you know, getting like a job and, and eventually in the, you know, in the eighties, there was a world cup Barbie and that all those tensions I think are so interesting in the movie you mentioned seeing and how there's the traditional, you know, and then the other Barbies like doing these different jobs all over the world and Wonder Woman and Charlie's Angels, like they're, they have to be both like smart and mystery solving, but they also have to be like super beautiful. And, you know, these were just the tensions that we grew up with and and young girls are still growing up with. But those were just a shared point of reference, I think, for for many people. So it was fun to put those in there. Yeah, I'm sitting over here just thinking about how many times I watched Charlie's Angels as a kid. And I do think, you know, when you meet somebody, if you have that same pop culture experience, it automatically makes you feel like, I know this person. 
You know, like when you said that, it's like, oh, okay, we have this shared experience that we can talk about, even if we have nothing else in common, we have that in common. When I read from the uh, beginning of the book, sometimes where I talk about having like way too much hairspray and sun in in my hair. (laughs) (laughs) Not all generations get that. Everyone kind of knows the 80s were the hairspray era, but you know, some people also get the sun in. And I, I feel like if they're like, oh, no. I'm not interested in sports or soccer or whatever, but suddenly they're like, oh, good. This is also going to be about bad hair. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so w- Title IX, that generally, it seems like it might not sp- you know, send people into spirals of excitement, right? But it has a very important place in your memoir. So explain what was Title IX. Yeah, so I, I know it's not like, that exciting seeming. But the fact is, it shaped my entire life. It probably shaped your entire lives. I mean, the subtitle is The Law That Changed Women's Lives. It was signed in 1972. It's only 37 words. And it basically is about prohibiting sex discrimination in educational institutions. And the ripple effects were just huge. It was not initially intended to have anything to do with sports. um, But that's one of the things it's most known for right now. Because once you start looking at discrimination in educational institutions, you start to see that like, oh, all of the sports teams are for boys, and there's nothing for girls. And if we're going to comply with Title IX, we have to start offering sports programs for girls. So in the late 70s, eight to 10 years after the law was signed, schools started to get into compliance. And by the early 80s, there were just a lot more opportunities for girls like me. I mean, I I learned that my high school soccer team had only been formed like five years before I got there, which mm. when you're 14, five years is a long time, but it's like five years, what? <laughs> That's nothing. And then when, when I got to my college team, there had been no team there until like six years before I got there. And you just realize like, oh, this is because of Title IX. This is because they're getting in. So yeah, it doesn't seem very sexy, but it's it's totally shaped everything and not just sports. You know, we talked about the pop culture. What are some yeah. things that you did in terms of, you know, specifically with Title IX to try to make the fact of that law, which, you know, doesn't necessarily, it's not sexy, right? Even yeah. though it does have these really profound historic implications for for girls and women. So how did you try to write about it in a way to make it interesting for people who either, you know, didn't know anything about it or who maybe have no interest in sports? (laughs) Yeah, well, I try to focus on the individuals and the context in which it was signed. So Dr. Bernice Sandler, who's known as the godmother of Title IX, I love her story. So I tried to tell some of that where in the late 1960s, she had just gotten her doctorate from the University of Maryland. And there were all these jobs that were open and available and uh, like seven jobs at the university that she was now fully qualified for, but she was not being considered for any of them. So she asks one of her male colleagues, why am I not being considered for any of these jobs? And he says, ah, let's face it, Bunny, which was her nickname. You come on too strong for a woman. Hmm. And hmm. she's written this like extensive overview of, of her story of Title IX. And she said that when she heard those words, she had no idea that they would go on to change the lives of millions of girls and women because they would ultimately lead to Title IX. She said, instead, I went home and cried. Mm. And I just found that such a poignant moment, but that, you know, so many points of activism start with a personal moment like that. And she said it was her husband who was like, that is sex discrimination, you know, (laughs) like helped her see it in this more practical way that just got her like reaching out to all of these women and in higher ed in particular and getting similar stories of like, oh, yeah. I got like the worst office. I didn't get a promotion. I'm paid way less than my male colleagues. You know, my teaching schedule is way worse. What, you know, all of these ways in which women were constantly being discriminated against. And, and then, you know, she takes it to Washington where we have just a handful of women representatives who also know exactly what it's like to be in a man's world of politics. And they all have their own stories. So it's a long way to say that 
I just tried to have those little touch points of these personal stories that that the women behind Title IX experienced and how they came together and with allies like Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana and and got the law passed. I mean, that's just like one compressed little mini chapter really about Title IX. And then I just bring it up in different moments as we go through time. Like, okay, now it's like been 10 years since Title IX. Now it's been 20 years. And like, here's me 20 years after Title IX was signed on a Division I soccer team. Very different from the opportunities, you know, my mother's generation had. One of the stories that I enjoyed in the book was actually pre-Title IX, but it was about the soccer team in Britain back in the early 20th century. Found those women fascinating. Yes, yes. So not only did I grow up basically never hearing about Title IX, I also had this assumption that my generation was the first generation of girls or women to be playing competitive soccer. I knew my mom's generation hadn't, I knew my grandmother's hadn't. And I was doing research for this book and looking up, well, what is the history of women's soccer? When did women start playing competitively? And again, thinking it was basically my generation and learning that, yes, 100 years ago during World War One, there were women playing in front of thousands of people in England. And it was, you know, it's a kind of parallel story to a league of their own, right? Where in, in World War Two in America, the women started playing baseball while the men were off fighting in wars. And it was kind of a similar thing. I mean, uh, what they call football in England, but it was the very popular sport. Many men went off to war. Women started working in factories and they started to play football and they started these charity leagues, but they were also competitive. And again, they were playing in front of thousands of people. And I had no idea and I found it so fascinating. But I think what I found even more fascinating and telling in thinking of the history of women and sports and women in general is that they were playing in like 1921. And that was kind of a peak year where this team that I was talking about, the Dick Kerr ladies, which were named for the factory where they were, that year they played in front of almost a million people over the course of the year, you know, like 10,000 here, 20,000 there. And by the end of the year, now the war is over, the men are back playing, and there's competition now between men's and women's football. And the British Football Association, the major ruling organization over football slash soccer, issued a ban against women saying that the sport was, quote, quite unsuitable for females. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know? And so (laughs) that ban lasted for the next 50 years from 1921 to 1971. Women were not allowed to play. And it's like, oh, no wonder I never heard of them. Right. Because, you know, after this this, like amazing beginning, they were, they were banned. They did continue to play, but not with the facilities and opportunities and support. They almost lost to history until some recent historians have been writing about them. And you see so many parallels with that. And even the rise of women's soccer and sports through Title IX, so many steps forward and so many setbacks. So we've interviewed authors whose illustrator picked up on things that might not have been given as much focus, and they've expanded the story because it's coming from two different people's understanding of this text. But you write and you illustrate your own writing. So when you're doing that, are you trying to see what you wrote from a different angle for the illustrations, or are you trying to visualize the story you told without going too far afield? How does that work in your process? Yeah, I do a lot of going back and forth, and and I've met people and I've heard a lot of author illustrators who say that they, you know, write the whole script for the book first and then kind of draft the thumbnails and all the stuff, but. I'm going back and forth all the time. I'll draft a little bit, typing things on a Word document, and then I will sketch some things. I created the book in Procreate, so I'll do like digital sketches, and then I'll go back, and then I'll go you know, from one to the other. The writing and the drawing really do feed into each other. And so one example for me of the drawing helping to illuminate something in the writing was I have a couple of motifs, visual motifs, throughout the book. One is birds because my team was the Cardinals. And so I just kept putting a bird on it. I kept like drawing <laughs> Cardinals here and there throughout the book. 
And, and another is hands because I was a goalkeeper. And so I was drawing a lot of things about with, with like catching a soccer ball. But as I was drawing that, I, I was seeing like, oh, looking down at my hands, my hands look the same, whether I'm like catching a soccer ball or typing on a computer or typewriter, or even as a mother, like reaching down to, to pick up my daughter. And I, it became kind of like a, this visual motif connecting my different identities as a mother, a writer, an, an athlete, a goalkeeper. And it was the drawing of it that really helped me see that link. And that became where I begin and where I end the book with seeing those connections. And then also thinking of hands and palms and like fortune telling and mm. palm reading. And uh, so I say at one point early in the book, like if I could look back at those teenage goalkeeper hands, you know, what would I tell her? And that's like the act of a memoir, right? It's like I am actually looking back and I I can talk to her in a way. I'm talking back to that teenage self. So I liked thinking about hands in that way too. And so much of that just came out of the repeated drawing of hands. So hmm. that's interesting. Now, from what I understand, I you know, I I did a little stalking on your website. You didn't train as an artist. Is that accurate? Correct. You in 2018, you decided to start drawing or painting every day. And you had created a biographical collage titled, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, The Bitter Life of Bozina Nimkova. Is that right? Pretty close. Pretty close. Okay, in 2016. (laughs) So at, at what point did you decide because I I don't know that I would ever, I mean, I can draw some really atrocious things. And I think even if I practiced every single day, they're they're not going to get that much better. So at what point did you feel comfortable enough with your art to even consider a graphic novel? Or were you just like, I'm going to do it no matter what? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, so yeah, I was an English major and an athlete, you know, in college. And then I went on to grad school in English. But even as I was thinking about grad school, I was very interested in going into a visual arts program, but I, I hadn't trained in it. I, I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't, I, I didn't really know how to <laughs> navigate that. And, but I had an English degree and I, I knew I was interested in writing and I was interested in visual art. Anyway, I ended up going on to get my, my PhD in English and, and focusing on fiction writing but all along, I was doing like little community ed classes here and there in like figure painting or acrylic painting or photography or calligraphy, all these different things. And the book that came out in 2016, I had been doing mixed media art journaling kinds of things on the side. And I was doing research for this this book, The Bitter Life of Bojana Nemtseva. Oh, I um, said that way off. You were too nice. Well, you said it pretty. <laughs> you, you said it how I thought it was pronounced for a long time. I'll tell you that. But I learned in my visits to Prague that that was not how it was said. <laughs> so I was doing these collages and illustrations, just kind of on the side. And when that book got accepted for publication, it was only the written part. But I let the editors know. I was like, "Hey, I've." I've been doing these collages and drawing, you know, do you want to take a look at them and see if they would make any sense in the book? And, and I, I was so fortunate that they were open to that. And I just was hooked from there. And so, again, that came out in 2016. And as you said, it was in 2018 that I decided to start doing a drawing or painting or something every single day. And that was because I was getting totally pulled in by all of the graphic memoirs and comics I was reading. And I really wanted to to do that, to create something, storytelling with more integrated text and image. And I, I knew from grad school, like what I learned in grad school is I'm learning just through doing it, through reading, through writing, through talking about it with people. And so, all right, if I'm going to learn this, I'm going to have to learn through doing. So, so I started drawing every day and I did that for almost two and a half years. And and that, I just, at this point, have a pretty regular daily art practice. But I also think I want to say about this that it's so important to give yourself permission to do something if you want to do it. I mean, so many of us would say like, oh, I can't do it. I'm not trained in it. Therefore, I'm not allowed to. Mm. And I think, yes, you are allowed to. Like, if you want to 
do it, try to do it, you know? And I think by that point in my life and career, that was my third published book. I felt I had a PhD. I was a professor. I was like, okay, I feel like, you know, established enough in writing that it freed me up to take a risk in doing visual storytelling. And I don't think I needed that to give myself permission to do it, but but that helped me give myself permission. But I just want to say to everybody, like, if you want to do something, give yourself permission and go do it. Life's too short. Yeah. You know, I, I had asked the question, you know, I, I phrase it, you didn't train as an artist, but you did because as you right. said, you were learning, you were taking classes sometimes. And I do this myself even, you know, I think, well, did they study it in college? Do they have a PhD in it? But there are lots of different ways to, to train whether it's like you said, just getting your own books and reading and practicing or yeah. attending classes at your local community art center, you know, it can, it can look mm-hmm. a, a lot of different ways. Yeah. No, that's a great point to say like, I, yeah, it was, it was a training. <laughs> well, you have a new book that came out over the summer called field guide to graphic literature, where you talk about graphic narrative, poetry, comics, and literary collages. So what are those things? So graphic literature is basically any kind of storytelling or poetry that incorporates text and image together. So it's just a way of like taking one step beyond what we usually think of as comics um, with which tend to be thought of as more of just like a sequential narrative and, you know, often in panels and, and to allow for things like blackout poetry or other forms of like erasures where people like will draw or collage over top of pages from books and also to include poetry comics in particular where they're not trying to tell a story, but they're using more poetic language, but are using all of the other elements of comics like panels and speech bubbles and that sort of thing. So it's just a a way to talk about all of that stuff all together. And so we actually have 28 contributors and Mira Jacob, she's got a memoir, a graphic memoir called Good Talk. That's very collagey. And like she cuts out pictures of herself and lays them over top of like, you know, Michael Jackson (laughs) records and pictures of New York and that kind of thing. And so she's one of our contributors. And then we've got people who make poetry comics like Bianca Stone, and then people who are doing more collage kinds of things. So this is another thing that kind of came out of my teaching was like, I've been having students in my classes do all sorts of comics and blackout poetry and all these kinds of things. And I wanted a book that could be in kind of an instructional reference for that was loaded with full color examples of all these different kinds of things they could do. And, you know, again, not just sequential comics. So I got Tom Hart, who's an amazing writer and cartoonist, to co-edit it with me. And and we put together a collection we're really proud of. So each of those writers, artists, talks about how they do what they do. And then there's like a four or five page full color example of what they do. So including like five, four pages from the book. And then there's like a, an exercise that readers can try. I was just thinking because I teach and, you know, thinking about authentic assessment. And I love the idea of bringing in different components to have, you know, because they get tired of, you know, just to do the same old thing. They've done narrative, they've done poetry, but to pull in something a little bit different sounds like it would be a great resource for teachers. Yes, yes. I think it'll be a great resource for for writers interested in doing things with uh, images. I think it'll be a good resource for cartoonists who want to learn more about writing and different styles and different kinds of cartooning. And then, yes, for teachers, for for sure, in the classroom. I'm looking forward to using it in my own class. Well, you know, I'm a newbie when it comes to reading graphic novels. Carrie introduced them to me, really. And I think that many in our generation, like 40 and older, probably are new to graphic novels. So how did you first discover them? And why do you think graphic novel virgins should give them a try? (laughs) Uh, That's a funny way to put it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I actually, like a lot of things for me, it came out of 
teaching, there was some student interest in graphic novels. And uh, and this happened to me too with writing even nonfiction. You know, I, like I said, it, with my PhD, I was, my concentration was on fiction and my first two books were fiction. And then my students were like, hey, can you teach a nonfiction class? And I started like reading and writing it all the time. And it was kind of the same with graphic novels. So Persepolis by Marjan Sartrapi came out about 20 years ago now. And that was one of the first ones I read. And it was for a class that I was teaching, you know, it was like a, an introductory to all sorts of things class. And that was just one of the texts. And, and the storytelling was so powerful. She writes about growing up during the Iranian revolution in the early 1980s. And I don't know, I just couldn't believe how powerful the visuals were with the story. Um, and it's just all in this black and white. And I thought it was so great. Fun Home by Alison Bechtel was another that I found really just it's like a page turner to me, like learning about her relationship with her father and his death. There's just also cool things that a graphic novel or memoir can do. I love the work of Dominique Goblet, and she has this chapter in her book called Pretending is Lying, where every panel is her with her boyfriend, but in the background is like this erased smudge ghostly figure of his ex-girlfriend and ah. and she's there in every single panel but there's no words mentioned about her and mm. you know they're shopping in the grocery store and the ex-girlfriend is with them they're having dinner they're in bed but you know and like the ex-girlfriend is just in every scene and and ultimately like throughout the course of it their relationship disintegrates because then also the their ex-girlfriend starts calling but it's just like these really, I don't know, like these haunting visuals that, that can be really powerful. So, yeah, give them a try. I, <laughs> I was not so sure about them myself. I had kind of the standard, you know, oh, comics are just about superheroes and comics are for kids for a long time, but, but they're not. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about you as a reader. What's a niche topic that you love to read about? I am kind of a sucker for creativity books, <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, The Artist's Way, I, I wrote about that in The Keeper, how that was a book early on that helped me, like, make the transition from, like, understanding myself as an athlete to understanding myself as an artist. And uh, I've been kind of hooked on those sorts of books ever since. Well, at least you read them. I have, I'm looking at it right now. I have a shelf filled of creativity and writing books and have not cracked a single one. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> I should make that my goal for 2024, right? To You're never going to do that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate the. the uh, <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. You, you're never going to do that because you'll get distracted by like a book about some new mushroom, you know, like well, that'll I be do your distracted early, but topic that you're like, oh, and you'll go down. True. But I, I'm a little sad that you don't have more confidence in me. <laughs> well, we have been friends for almost 20 years. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, wait, what, what appeals to you about them that you buy them? And why do you think you don't read them? <laughs> well, the I, tables have turned. I, I, know, I, I'm like, I, <laughs> I was also an, an English major in college. And when I was in high school and college, I did a lot of creative writing. And in college, like that was sort of my emphasis. And then I just didn't do writing very much after I got out of college. And in fact, I thought when I had my first child, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have all kinds of time that I could start, you know, writing. I was so <laughs> clueless. I thought, oh, yeah. oh, the baby's napping. The baby sleeps a lot. I'll write. Well, no, what I did was sleep. That's what I did <laughs> when the baby was sleeping is sleep. Yeah. Anyway, so a couple of years ago, I decided, you know what? I, I want to try a writing class. So I did. And so that's when I bought a lot of these books. But I decided that I think that I like reading books more than I actually like writing books. And I'm kind of okay with that. But I am a creative person. Like I always have some sort of creative outlet. So, you know, I'm not saying that I will never read them or never do anything with them. It just maybe yeah. hasn't been the right time for me. Yeah. I don't know. So there you go. Yeah. There's, a, there's a little bit of therapy right there in my <laughs> <laughs> So 
besides the creative way, is there another one that you really like that you'd recommend? And I can add it to my my little uh, collection of uh, creativity books. I mean, in that genre, I'm revisiting the book Art and Fear by David Bales and Ted Orland. And sounds like might be appropriate for you. Um, but it was one that when I, in 2018, when I started drawing and painting every day, there's a passage in that book where they talk about how like a teacher divided the class into two sides. It was a ceramics class. And one half of the class to get an A in the class, they had to create like a perfect pot. And the other half of the class, all they had to do was create 50 pounds of pottery. And so it was this quantity versus quality sort of thing. And the outcome was that the, the half of the class that had to, to create 50 pounds of pottery created far better hmm. pottery <laughs> because they were trying and failing and experimenting and they yeah. weren't worried about creating a perfect pot. So I used that as like an anecdote for me. And I, I, I even, I called my year 50 pounds of art, like I was going to make 50 pounds of art. And so just do it, experiment, play, try. And so I don't, so it's fun to, I'm revisiting that, that book right now in, uh, in a different context, you know, five years later. Yeah, I love yeah. that analogy. Well, thank you for that recommendation. Well, this has been awesome. I love it when Amy gets schooled by, by guests. It does, it, Rarely happens, but I sort of love it. It needs to happen more often. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Kelsey Ervick, the author of The Keeper, Soccer, Me, and the Law That Changed Women's Lives. And of course, I have Carrie right here, and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So Carrie, what's been on your nightstand? Well, the the books I'm going to talk about, primarily the first one, Wild Seed by Octavia Butler. And then I also read the next book in that series, which is called Mind of My Mind. So the only book I had read by Octavia Butler prior to these was Parable of the Sower. But then I was listening to an older episode of the To Read List podcast, and they talked about Wild Seed, and he thought that was the best book. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. So Wild Seed is about a man named Doro. And I, I say he's a man, but he's not really a man because he can jump bodies and live for thousands of years. That's how he continues to exist. And so he meets and falls in love with Anyanwu, who is a shapeshifter. So they meet in Africa, and he sort of makes her an important part of his seed villages, what are called seed villages. These are communities of people that Doro brings in and mates with each other in order to create this unique society whose members have special supernatural gifts. He travels all over the world and he finds people who have these special abilities, special traits, and then he will move them wherever he wants to introduce this special trait into a line of new people. And so it is a fantasy, but it also brings up a lot of meaty topics that relate to U.S. history in some way, such as the role of slavery. So, you know, the novels, the first book, Wild Seeds, starts in Africa, and then they go to the United States. And then it also brings up, you know, the idea of, of eugenics. And what does it mean to try to create a race of people that's how you envision them to be? So of the two, Wild Seed and Mind of My Mind, I preferred Wild Seed more, but that could just be sort of like the novelty aspect of it. I was like, oh, wow. And then by the time I got to the second book, I was like, well, I sort of know what's going on. But there are actually four more books beyond Wild Seed in this. It's called the Pattern Master series. So if this is something that sounds intriguing to you and you like the first one, there are more books that you can read. So I would recommend it if you're if you're into something that's a little a little weird, a little wild, uh, wild seed is the way to go. So very good. I feel like that's one of hers that maybe a lot of people haven't heard of. I think most yeah. people have heard of Kindred, Kindred. or Parable of the Sower and this, right. but she wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, Kelsey, what have you been reading? I have been reading a book that 
you might find interesting. It's related to history and it's kind of a graphic narrative about it. It's called America Redux by Ariel Aberg Reiger. Are you familiar hmm. with that? No. no. Okay. It's subtitled Visual Stories from Our Dynamic History. And I think it just won a Kirkus Prize, like a huge award. I met, quote unquote, Ariel via Instagram. And so we've been in touch. She's visited my class via Zoom. But she is an amazing visual storyteller. And this book is basically re-looking at American history and the myths that we have told ourselves and making these incredible connections between our past and our present culture and policies. And like one chapter is called A Nation of Immigrants. And so it, it looks at some of the history of our immigration, but with these super dynamic collage illustrations, like she'll take like old photos from, you know, old postcards and just black and white photos from all of history. And, and then she draws over them, creates these like lines, and then the whole book is hand lettered. But she looks at not only, you know, our sort of myth of the melting pot, but all of our problematic immigration policies that we had. She's got like a chapter called A Good Guy with a Gun and talks about Sam Colt, who invented the Colt 45 and like makes a link from that to current AR-15s and mass shootings in America. And she really like brings history alive through her images through the stories that she tells and it's i don't know it's visually stunning and historically fascinating so mm, very um, cool cannot get enough of this of this book um That's i'm gonna awesome. look that one up and i've already yeah. put it on reserve at the library <laughs> as you were talking i'm like frantically putting it on reserve <laughs> <laughs> yes yes you will not be sorry <laughs> try to have something like a graphic that I'm reading. And that's what I'm reading right now in terms of graphic stuff. I usually like to have one of those creativity kinds of books. And I'm also reading Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us by Susan Magsimum and Ivy Ross. And it's basically they're doing the science to confirm what a lot of us suspect about the arts, which is that making anything artistically or even experiencing it as a reader, as a viewer, as a audience member is good for our mental health, right? It like lowers our blood pressure, um, makes us feel better. So they named it Your Brain on Art, but they said they were going to name it 20 Minutes of Art a Day or basically because that that's what they learned that 20 minutes of making or experiencing art is hugely beneficial to our bodies and minds. Well, Amy, I know you're not reading books about creativity, but what what have you been reading? <laughs> no, but I am going to talk about a book that has art in it today. Oh, okay. I finished a book recently called Landings, A Crooked Creek Farm Year by Arwen Donahue. This is a graphic memoir, or I've also heard it described as a hybrid memoir art book. So I'm not exactly sure what the difference is between those two things, but I, I don't think it's consequential <laughs> to me anyway. Right. But <laughs> it is the artist and writer Arwen Donahue's account of a year in the life of her family on their farm in central Kentucky. Arwen yep. lived in Washington, D.C., and she worked uh, at the United States Holocaust Museum, where she managed their post-Holocaust interview project. But her husband's family was from Kentucky, and they had a family farm homestead there, and they decided to leave the city and try their hand at farming. So this book has an introduction by Barbara Kingsolver, and it is comprised of 130 ink and watercolor drawings that are then paired up with a journal-like entry for the day throughout the year. So their farm supplied CSA subscriptions for 15 years, and it also provides produce to local markets in the Lexington, Kentucky area. And her entries talk about the beauty of the land, of being bound to it for better or for worse, the beauty of a slow and quiet life, the beauty of feeding yourself on the things that your hands toiled to grow. But she doesn't shy away from the challenges of the day-to-day, -day, the immense amount of work for very little profit, uh, the challenges of having a child and raising her in a rural setting, and the challenges of being Jewish in an overwhelmingly conservative Christian area. And these are just a few things um, that she touches on. The art is soothing with these soft colors and this fluid feeling. 
that watercolors tend to give. And the writing is just beautiful. It felt like poetry. And when I was reading it, I don't know if I am really conveying this in my description, but it's sort of achingly beautiful because it's very sad in some parts and very joyful in other parts. She really does evoke emotion from the reader, at least for me. Uh, I tried to go through this book slowly so that I could savor it. And I would think I'm only going to read the entries from April today, but then I could hardly keep myself from continuing to read. I found it a very meditative experience reading it. And I checked a copy out of the library, but now I want to buy a copy for myself to keep because I think it is something that I could return to again and again. And we are coming up on the holidays. And I think this would be a great gift for a person in your life who is very nature oriented, uh, maybe a person who appreciates art and poetry or, you know, literature, or even a person who enjoys cooking, uh, maybe a person who loves going to the farmer's market, uh, and they're interested in where their food comes from. So I definitely think that it would be a great book for a variety of different readers. I highly, highly recommend this book. It was an overwhelming five-star book for me. So again, the name of that is Landings, A Crooked Creek Farm Year by Arwen Donahue. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I totally second all of that. Arwen is actually one of the contributors in oh, the field awesome. geographic literature. And so I've worked with her via email, you know, going back and editing her essay. And so her essay in the book is called A Geography of Comics, Uncovering Layers to Reveal the Bedrock of Story. And she writes about how her process of making a couple of comics that are sampled in there. But I adore landings and I got to meet her in person finally last year at the Kentucky Book Festival in Lexington. Oh, yeah. And and she was tabling there with her book and she had like her watercolor journals with like the original watercolors in them. And so I got to see them in person and it was just uh, so good. Okay. Well, we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to ask Kelsey, her fast and the furious. But before we do, we're going to hear from a fellow book lover who's going to give us one more five-star read. Hi, my five-star read is uh, Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. I have always loved it as a preschool teacher, always read it uh, to my students. It's a great book to read aloud with a lot of drama and added actions like gnarling and snarling and uh, gnashing your teeth. Uh, my son also loved it growing up. Maurice Sendak is the king of children's books in my eyes. He put a lot of work into Where the Wild Things Are. I've read about how he wrote it and how long it took him. So it's just a very nostalgic book and gorgeous book. I think that it might always be my five-star read. My name is Barbara Kelly, and I live in Skokie, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. I have a book account, a children's book account, that you can check out. It's Miss Barbara's Bookshelf on Instagram. We're back with Kelsey Irvick, author of The Keeper, Soccer, Me, and the Law That Changed Women's Lives, a graphic memoir. Kelsey, are you ready for your fast and furious questions that Amy always mucks up because she has to get more information? It's never fast. (laughs) All right. So you had an experience recently with a sports bra in Portland. Tell us what happened. (laughs) Yes, there is a relatively new bar in Portland called the sports bra. And I just love everything about that. It was founded by this woman who she and her friends just wanted to watch the women's basketball finals. I think it was the NCAA. Uh, It might've been the WNBA. Anyway, they wanted to watch women's sports and they went to a sports bar and had to like ask to have the, the game put on and they had to sit over in the corner and watch it on the one screen where every other screen was just filled with the usual men's sports. And she said, basically, it was one of those things. She was like, I should open a bar dedicated to women's sports. And then she did. It's been featured on ESPN and the Today Show and, all, you know, all the magazines and stuff. So it's it was, I don't know, it was a very cool undertaking. And so in the summer, shortly before the Women's World Cup 
uh, was beginning, I got to go to Portland and have a book event there with two other amazing soccer writers. Powell's was there selling our books and all of these people came and, and it was fabulous. I just love that concept. And I love the name sports bra. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> For I know. a place that just shows women's sports. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, one of their little handles is we support women's sports. Or, we support women, <laughs> but you know. Like, so they had some fun with that. <laughs> On your social media, you seem to have a thing for birds. So what is your strangest <laughs> bird encounter? I've had so many strange bird encounters, and most of them have been with geese. Geese are kind of mean. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, they are. I live near the St. Joseph River here in northern Indiana. And yeah, they're kind of mean. But now that I'm living near them and our deck overlooks an area of grass where they love to feed, we get a lot of geese coming in and going all the time. And now I've met many injured geese but there there was this goose that we named le juice and i don't know why other than the rhyme but um <laughs> we also have a lot of people fishing nearby and it had fishing line wrapped around its leg so it's basically a leg that could not function at all so it just hopped on oh. the other leg and it was so sad and you could i could see the fishing line and i was like oh if i could get close to it i might be able to cut it off but Honestly, by the time he came around, actually she, we think it was a she, the damage had been done. And But she'd come hopping up and then we would feed her some oats. I learned that you could like just feed them Quaker oats. And um, But then like other geese would come around and, you know, shoo her away. And she and then I would come out with a broom and shoo them away so that she <laughs> could get her oats. <laughs> like every day she would show up on her own because geese, you know, they hang out together. But this one was like almost always alone. And then she found like another injured goose and they kind of hung out together. And we just have like the land of misfit geese in our backyard. Another one came up that I talked to the the park people about and they were like, well, is is this Stumpy? And I said, no, because there's another goose named Stumpy that only has a stump. It doesn't even have a foot. And but then Stumpy started coming up. And then geese with like feathers. Yeah, yeah, we have geese with feathers that don't work, so they don't fly. And then then they come up and they think they can get oats. So I don't know. Being around her made and around and just being around geese in general makes me like less afraid of them. But then, like sure enough, like six months ago, one made a beeline for me when I was running on the path. I, I mean, it came for me, head down, and then it flew up and literally its belly hit my head on its way. Like it was oh. trying to attack me. We had a little standoff. I had I, I did like a karate kid, like stuck my foot out so it wouldn't come back at me. And then, you know, and I'm like by myself running, but there's all these people around and then I'm like looking around and, and then they just like look away because they're all embarrassed for me. And I'm like, so. <sighs> <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> well, last question. What is your favorite place of all the places you've traveled? It has to be Ervik, Norway. So oh, my wow. last name is Ervik. My grandfather came from a town in Norway called Ervik, where everyone is named Ervik. And we got to go there for the first time about 15 years ago. And then we went again as a family last summer. My grandfather was one of the only ones who left to come to America. And he came in the 1920s. But most of the rest of them not necessarily stayed in Ervik, although some did, but you know, some they, they stayed in like Sweden and Norway, just in Scandinavia. It is stunningly beautiful. It is on the coast of Norway. It's a teeny tiny village. And we got to go there and, you know, visit one of our relatives' homes and they were like, Oh, this is where your grandfather was born. Oh my um, goodness. And then it was the post office and now it's the family house. And, you know, I mean there's only like twenty or thirty homes in the whole village but yeah it's not there's a beach on the water and you know it's like the land of the midnight sun so we're hanging out with relatives and like someone's got a guitar and the sun is still still setting at like one in the morning and there's this family cemetery where like all of my ancestors that i never even knew existed are buried and it's just incredibly special to go there wow 
<laughs> well, Kelsey, it has been a pleasure for me to talk to you because I loved your book and I am a graphic memoir aficionado now. And maybe I'll even try out some of your creativity books that you recommended. <laughs> it has been a true pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun to chat with you both. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. To send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button. And don't be a Scrooge. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.